listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Lisa Jewell. Lisa's first novel, Ralph's Party, was the best-selling debut novel of 1999. And since then, she has written another 18 novels, most recently a number of dark psychological thrillers. She is a New York Times and Sunday Times number one best-selling author and has been published worldwide in over 25 languages. She lives in North London with her husband, two teenage daughters, and the best dog in the world. Her most recent novel, The Family Remains, is out now and available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Lisa and I discussed what might have happened if she'd listened to her instinct and not accepted a second date with a man who she didn't really fancy, a man who went on to control almost every aspect of her life for the next five years. Along the way, we discussed the positive and negative effect of peer expectations, how easily women override their intuition in the name of being nice, plus we got Lisa just a little bit of her 20s back. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Oh, thank you for inviting me. What a thrill. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's really fun. And I was thinking about you and I discussed this path that we're going to go down. And when we were talking about the path, I was reading your latest novel, The Family Remains. And I don't know if I was projecting, but I felt like I could really see the influence of this particular period of your life on one character. Yes, the storyline around this character appears in lots of my books. I do keep coming back to it. I'm, well, I'm not surprised and we can, we, can, um, we can talk a little bit more about it and about why, because it sounds like an extremely powerful period of your, of your early life. Can you say a little bit about The Family Remains before we get started? Yes, so there's a, there's a, long, a long way of talking about The Family Remains. Um, which is for people who've read The Family Upstairs and want to know how it relates to that book. But I'm going to give you the short one on the assumption that most people who are listening haven't read The Family Upstairs. So the elevator pitch for The Family Remains is um, on a June morning, a bag of human remains are found in um, a black plastic bag on the shores of the River Thames. And Detective Samuel Owusu is charged with finding out who the bones belong to and how the person died. And his investigations take him back to a huge uh, abandoned mansion on Cheney Walk in Chelsea overlooking the river where he finds out that 20 years beforehand, three dead dead bodies have been found on the kitchen floor in a state of early decomposition while in a bedroom upstairs, a 10-month-old baby was cooing happily in her cot, having been very nicely looked after by someone who was a mystery. So that is The Family Remains. 
Incredible. Well, it was, it was, I, I, I hate to say the word gripping, but it was really gripping and it just had me, had me flipping through the pages all the way through and it was wonderful. Let's, I want us to get right into your path. Um, and it's one that takes place, uh, as we said, in your early 20s. And I'm wondering if you could please just give a little context. Where were you? What was going on with you before uh, the crossroads moment that we're going to discuss? Well, when you say my, yeah, my 20s was very early 20s. I was only 21. Um, and I had been uh, living and working in London. At the time, I was working as a fashion PR assistant for Warehouse, the high street fashion retailers. I was living in a flat share. I was going out all the time. I was desperate, desperate, desperate for a boyfriend. I'd got to that point where I was just feeling grubby with the whole Saturday night vibe of going out with my mates, going to clubs, trying to find a guy to like me. I'd just come out of a long-term relationship with someone who I'd nearly moved into a flat with and then he dumped me. So I was all sort of primed and ready to like do the grown-up thing and life just kept forcing me back into nightclubs. (laughs) (laughs) I just was over it. I didn't like the person I was during during those years or months as actually probably it was only probably months felt like years. And um, I used to get... um, Loot newspaper. It was a freebie. It was a freebie London newspaper. This was back in the very late 80s, stroke 1990. Um, And I used to get it for flat shares. I was constantly going from flat share to flat share. And um, I found myself looking at the the classified adverts, um, the personals, the lonely hearts ads. I'd never really, I'd never really investigated that before I'd always just put my put my destiny into the hands of a Saturday night in Soho. Aside from just being tired of the grubbiness do you have any more thought about why you were so why it seemed so urgent at that stage or was it really just that you just didn't like the so the other stuff had happened just in the sort of couple of years beforehand I'd been in this relationship for two years uh, with this guy who I was prepared to settle down with. And as I say, we got we nearly moved into a flat together. And towards the end of our relationship, my mum and dad split up. So I was 20, just about to turn 21 when that happened. Um, and, you know, parents always think that they'll wait for their children to grow up split up because it won't be so impactful and so damaging to the child. doesn't matter how old you are. Your mum and dad split up. It's damaging and impactful. Um, and I I couldn't correlate the two things directly in my head. I didn't think, oh, my mum and dad are split up, therefore I must get married. But one has to assume that that was at play in me being so um, anxious at such a young age. It must have had something to do with it. I think that's a fair assessment. We have that kind of drive to repair, don't we, in our own lives, what's kind of gone wrong. My little sister got married at 21 as well. Um, so, yeah. Did she? Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Tell me about tell me about the ad that you found in Loot. <laughs> so it said something along the lines of male 24, 24-year-old male likes Tom Waits, picnics, and I can never remember the third thing. It was just Tom, oh, Tom Waits, picnics, and Thai food. I mean, I'm not a Tom Waits fan, but I like the idea of somebody being a Tom Waits fan. I'm all up for that. It feels like a good category of person in general, like you can trust a Tom Waits fan. That was my thinking. That was exactly my thinking. He just sounded fresh and appealing and refreshing. 
Um, and I like the fact he's a little bit older than me. I've always dated men who are a little bit older than me. Oh, and he described himself as good looking. And I thought, well, that, that yes, yes, of course. Of course, you should also be good looking. And so I um, and I was trying to remember how one actually communicated with someone via a personal ad back in 1990. Um, I assume there was like a, a post office box number or something. I do remember writing him a very long letter all about myself. And I remember <laughs> one of the things I told him about myself in this very long letter, but I was trying to describe myself to him. I had incredibly long hair then. <clears throat> and I said, my hair is my crowning glory. <laughs> <laughs> Which seemed reasonable at the time. Everybody always told me I had really nice hair back then. So I thought that seemed a reasonable thing. I mean, the letter sounds amazing. Did you know you were a writer then? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, knew, I mean, I was good at writing. It was the only thing I was good at. I was, I'd been good at writing since I was a very young child, but I certainly didn't have any ambitions that involved writing. At that point, I didn't have any actually ambitions at all. I was just sort of going to just keep working at Warehouse for a while and uh, see where that led me. But yeah, I'm sure it was a very good letter. Um, and he's also a very good writer. And he wrote back. And what, what did he say? Oh, he just said lots of things that made himself sound very interesting. And I wish I could remember most of them, but it was about, you know, he'd been to school in South London, to a, a posh private school in South London. I thought I like the idea of a posh boy um, and that he lived in his father's flat in um, Crystal Palace. And I immediately visualised a father's flat and I thought it would be like sort of very well upholstered with lots of um, comfortable sofas and portraits on the wall and stuff. He just had a lovely way with words and he made himself sound very appealing. This is what I was looking for at that time. Um, and then we exchanged phone numbers. And um, yeah, for some reason, I don't know why, he first when he first phoned me, it was, I was at my mum's um, house and actually, I'm assuming as I was at my mum's house because this was in the period directly after my mum and dad splitting up. So I think me and my sisters were sort of in the nest quite a lot, making sure she was all right. And we just talked for ages and he had this beautiful voice, so well spoken um, and funny and charming and just and also flattering already, even though we hadn't met yet. And yes, yeah, so I agreed to go on a date with him. And thus it all began. <laughs> Um, so I arranged that we would meet in Chinatown at 3pm. Uh, he found us a nice Chinese restaurant. We were going to go for dim sum on a Sunday afternoon. And so he told me what he'd be wearing. And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound very nice. Like, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> like a zip up jumper or something. I don't know. Um, and I approached this restaurant in Chinatown and I saw him and my heart sank and I just thought, no, oh, no. no, you are not him. You are all wrong. I don't like anything about the way you're presenting yourself to the world. I don't like your outfit. I don't like your hair. I don't like your face. I'm going to just stuff some dumplings down and go home. And then we went upstairs and I can picture myself, yeah, sitting at this table in the window on the first floor. And he was just, yeah, he, he won me round. He was just so exactly what I wanted in every other way apart from what he looked like conversational bright funny attentive clearly thought I was enchanting and then it came to the end of our dim sum 
and just I'd had a beer or two and he said I'm not ready to go home yet would you like to go on an open top bus tour with me and um and it was winter so it was chilly and um I said yeah okay and so we did this open top bus tour um and it just felt like you know something out of a of a movie these are the sorts of things that you do when you're with a proper boyfriend um which is what I wanted he said I'm going to call you in three days and then he called me three days later and I'd already decided that I was going to let him down gently because I just thought this is it was a nice afternoon but no isn't that interesting so even after that whole sort of thing where he won you over you were still at the end of it you were just like nah I didn't fancy him yeah I didn't fancy him that was the problem he ticked so many boxes. Um, but I, yeah, so I had it all planned. I, was t- I remember talking to my girlfriends at work about what I was going to say to him and how I was going to word it because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be horrible. So I had it all planned and then I just didn't do it and I agreed to go out with him again. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because you're obviously not alone in that thing of sort of completely overriding your instinct and just kind of thinking... Yes, but yes, but he ticks all the boxes. Yes, but why am I not? There must be it must be something that's wrong with me that I'm not interested in this guy, as opposed to just going. It's not a, it's not even a value judgment on anyone. It's just a no. You're absolutely right. I think it was that I must be the issue here because he was a perfectly nice looking guy. You know, he was nicely well, nice not not to my taste, but to other ladies' taste, nicely dressed. Ultimately. You, you continued to say no to your intuition and you ultimately... Yes, and we had such, we, we did have such a nice time together. He was, you know, he used to buy me jewellery, take me out for dinner to lovely restaurants. We painted his flat to get his flat, which turned out to not be a nice flat with comfortable sofas and portraits on the wall, but absolutely half derelict with the windows taped over with cardboard and just, yeah, horrible, horrible flat. But yes... We painted it together and that was, you know, with music playing and all these things. It was all these things from the movie of my life um, that were actually happening. You can see the montage. Yes, the montage, exactly. Wandering hand in hand down the side of the Thames. But all along, I knew that this wasn't right. And then he asked me to marry him three months in. And what did I do? I said, yes. Why did I say yes? Because... I thought if I say no, then it's over. Then this is done. There's no coming back from saying no to a wedding proposal, a marriage proposal. Um, And I just wasn't strong enough. And we went to the antiques market on the King's Road and we bought a lovely vintage engagement ring for me. And this is part of, I think, what went wrong is because I was so young and I was surrounded by young women and sisters who were all signed up to the full romantic bells and whistles and were probably secretly wishing that something like that could happen to them. They were so invested. They were so excited. It's like, oh, congratulations. And just everybody wanting to know the details and how did he propose and let me look at your ring. And I just got completely and utterly caught up in all of that ridiculousness. The the weight of expectation in that situation, isn't it? Once you feel like other people's sort of well-being and happiness is tied into your actions, you're, it is, you're right. It's so hard to disentangle yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was only one person, one person throughout that. I, we were engaged for nine months. We got married a year to the day after our first date. And one friend came up to me on the night of my 
my hen night, she took me into a room and said, you don't have to do this. It's not too late. We will all be here for you. I just poo-pooed her, which I still feel a bit. I feel guilty about that because she was doing the right thing. And she was the only person who did do the right thing. Did she see that you just weren't into it or did she have like a taste? Did she have a sense of what was coming? I think she could probably see the fact that my boyfriend was at my hen night. Oh. Probably a signifier that things weren't quite right. So I think she could tell that things weren't right. I'd gone from being incredibly sociable and up for fun all the time to making excuses as to why I couldn't attend social things. And um, so she probably knew that things were not quite right. And she could probably also tell that if things weren't right now, things were going to get even worse. And she was entirely correct, entirely. So what happened? How did things get worse? Um, So it started shortly after we got engaged. The first sign that things were going to go really horribly, sinisterly wrong was that he took a, after I moved into his apartment, he took a day off work after I'd moved in to go through all my personal belongings. I didn't know this for three days. All I knew was for three days he didn't talk to me. Silent treatment for three days. Um, and then finally he cracked and told me that he had re- <laughs> he had read my diary um. uh, and read the entry in my diary of um, the day after our first date where I had said, he just seems like such a great guy. He's got everything going for him. I had such an amazing time. Who cares if he's ugly? So he read that. And I think that was the beginning of the the, the really, really dark, dark times. Um, he just became more and more controlling, more and more dismissive of anything that was in my life that wasn't directly related to him. Uh, he used, he started criticising the way I dressed, um, started criticising the way I was in bed um, and sort of, yeah, belittling. So it went from him meeting me, basically giving it the full... I've never met a girl like you before. You are so much better than every other girl out there. You're perfect. You're amazing to just pick, pick, picking away at my confidence and making me feel, trying to make me feel diminished. I didn't have a front door key. Oh, my goodness. So I had no way of letting myself in and out of the home without him. I, I, at this point, I had been promoted to being the marketing, the acting marketing manager at Warehouse, uh, which meant that I was directly reporting to the director of Warehouse, uh, who was expecting to see a pretty polished performance. He would pick me up at the train station every night at the same time. And if I was more than like one or two minutes late, he wouldn't talk to me. So I had to rush off from work every single day. Uh, so I ended up getting the sack. Which is not surprising. I was not giving anything to that job because I was giving everything to him, to keeping him happy and to keeping keeping him sweet and keeping him from from um, giving me the silent treatment, which is it's a really vicious, insidious form of personal attack on another human being to stop talking to them. It's very, very hard to explain if you haven't lived with someone who does the silent treatment mm. how painful it is and how 
it just everything inside you just makes you want it to stop <laughs> and and flick the switch and get things back on an even keel which makes you do things and behave in ways that are not in your best interest. We moved from his father's flat in South London out to a little red brick box in the suburbs so that I could be even further away from from the uh, the temptations of London and fun times. And um, we were married for five, well, we were together for five years before I finally managed to get out of it. I can't believe I allowed that to happen to myself, but there you go. Well, I think, I mean, I can't believe he allowed that to happen well we want we want to take you in another direction (laughs) let's just think about what might have happened do we want to start do we want to say that you didn't answer the ad or do we want to say that you responded when your girlfriend told you that you should get out maybe the moment to go back to is the moment when I had planned to tell him I didn't want to go on a second date with him and then I said I did (laughs) That one's quite interesting because that's quite a quiet moment. But as we were talking about, it, I think it happens a lot. It's that sort of thing where you just kind of keep going along with something, even though it's just a bit mediocre, but because you feel bad, you know, yeah. and it's so female. And it's-, it's absolutely something that I've hammered into my daughters who are teenagers is like, don't worry so much about boys' hearts. They'll be mm. fine. Please don't make decisions based on, you know, be nice to people, be kind, be respectful. But don't tell a boy you love him if you don't. Don't have sex with a boy if you don't want to have sex with him. Boys' hearts are not that delicate. And although is it about hearts or is it about egos? I think with women, when they're looking at men, I think you're also thinking about their egos because the flip side of damaging a man's ego is that they can be violent. I'm talking obviously very I'm talking about on a very base level here, not like just general interactions with men. So I think it is, I think it's almost blurring the lines between heart and ego when when young women are dealing with men. Um, And I think, yeah, I definitely did blur that line. And I did so many times, so many times as a teenager and as a young woman. Um, And if there's one thing the five years in that marriage taught me is to never, ever blur that line again, you know. Mm. be kind but my goodness me don't hurt yourself in the process I remember everything about the moment I was living in this flat share um, above a restaurant on Holland Park Avenue and I was actually sharing a bedroom um, bunk beds I knew the phone was going to ring and that was the moment and there he was with his lovely voice he said I'd love to take you out for dinner so here we are yeah. You're in your flat, you're on the top bunk or somewhere. <laughs> he calls, he sounds gorgeous, but you don't want to go out with him again. So he says, I want to take you out to dinner and you say, no, thank you. Yeah. So what happens next? Never thought about this moment as being so pivotal before, but it really is. So I put down the phone and I feel a huge sense of relief. I know I will feel a huge sense of relief, particularly if he's taken it well, which I'm going to assume he would take it well. And then I will go into work the next day and all the female friends who'd you know, helped me script my rejection will say, well, how did it go? And I'll say, I think it was fine. And they'd have all said, well done. I like that we've harnessed the power of expectation in a positive way because you were obviously, we went so far the other way and you were so worried about what everybody thought in terms of yeah. you getting married. But this is this is the good side of that. Yes, 
Absolutely. They've been there for me while I was asking for advice on how to let this guy down gently. And also I was able to deliver, you know, to say thank you. So then I guess I would have turned my thoughts back to how to find a proper boyfriend. And it's, okay. it's very possible I would have gone back to the loot adverts, actually, because there was so much about him that ticked the boxes of what I was looking for at that point in my life. Um and no boy in any nightclub anywhere in London was t- even coming close to ticking one box. So then the question comes, okay, so, but so you're, you're working, you're feeling supported by your girlfriends and, but you're still checking out your advert. And so oh, but oh. here's another thing, which yeah. I've thought is that it was at this point where I'd just been promoted to um, the, 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 the marketing manager. Ah, I mean, that's amazing at the age of 21. That's incredible. Yes, mad, actually. Um, And then I met this guy who didn't want me to come home late from work um, or take my job seriously at all because it was in fashion. So that was the other thing. If I hadn't met him, I could have been in a position to really, really shine in that job. I could have stayed late. I could have impressed a new director I could have ended up being promoted and promoted and promoted inside Warehouse and become a massive part. I'd already been promoted twice before I met the guy I married. So I was already doing quite well there. So, yes, that's another thing that could have happened. I could have ended up being really successful. Let's let's keep let's keep unfurling it because this is fun. So you you um, this was a temporary thing because your manager at the time, she was. She had been, so Warehouse was owned by one of those sort of umbrella companies who owned lots of other fashion brands as well. So she was taken off to run the marketing department of another one of their brands for a year, I think it was. And rather than get a replacement for herself, she said to this director, I think Lisa could do this. I think she's up for it. Why don't we just give her a trial run um, and see if she can cover for me? And yes, I singularly failed to do that because of events. Okay, but in this life, you don't singularly fail. So you keep pushing. And so they and they then presumably you passed your trial. Yeah. Okay. I've been the marketing manager for a major high street fashion um, chain. So then do you get do you get more money? I would have got more money is not very well paid, the fashion industry. So it wouldn't have been lots and lots of money. But this was in the this was like 1990 or whatever. You could live quite well in London on not very much money back then. So whatever I was earning would have been enough to me to for me to be able to upgrade from a bunk bed in Holland Park. So what do you upgrade to? Um oh like a a bedroom with a double bed <laughs> maybe and maybe even an ensuite bathroom in a so fancy and yes and if you're out and about single girl in london much nicer to have a double bed uh than to be on the top bunk yes <laughs> i feel like your prospects are already getting so much more interesting and so what so yeah so do you presumably do you keep going out to the clubs even though they're feeling yeah, a bit grimy yes i would have because the girlfriend's the girlfriends who helped me get out of this, uh, the, 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 in the in this path we're now on, the ones who helped me get out of this relationship with this guy I'd only just met, who were also the girlfriends who were so invested in the whole idea of me getting married. Once that happened, they were the they were the linchpin of my social life. So that would have just carried on. But then it's possible if I this whole posh boy thing, and the posh boy thing turned out to be an interlude rather mm. than a part of my life. Um, 
that might have made me less desperate. So it's possible I might have returned to the clubs and pubs with my with my female posse with a slightly less desperate air about yeah. me. Yeah, I'm wondering if even just the simple act of having said no to somebody who you didn't really like that much might have just given you just that little oomph. Yeah, or just like the sort of guy that I thought I wanted actually isn't all that great and, uh. you know maybe I should just chill and just enjoy dancing with my girlfriends and not keep looking for my next boyfriend. Okay, so you're still going out, but it feels slightly less sort of frantic. And you're working this hardcore job. Um, so you're busy with that. Do you feel like you meet someone straight away? Does work take precedence? I would certainly work wouldn't have taken precedence. My love life or would still have been uppermost, but I think I would have had a much less desperate and warped, grubby kind of way of going about it. Like I say, I was definitely looking better. I'd had that experience. Um, I was doing well at work, um, which, as we say, means I've now moved out of the room with the duck bunk beds. and I've <laughs> nice. So that's four things that are better already. Feels good. Um, so, yeah, so I think anything that happened in a romantic context around those those four things would have been automatically improved. I certainly don't... What I don't think I'd have done is embraced my singledom. Okay. I don't think that would have happened. So do you think, in that sense, are you sort of... You're still sort of trying, so are you going on a lot of dates? It doesn't sound like we've you've encountered the person yet, but maybe you're dating... Yeah, I would definitely have been dating. It would have been great. And and this is what I always think of about those five years. So 21 when I met him, 26 when we split up. And those are the years, aren't they? They are the years. Years. There's this whole black hole in my 20s where all these things should have been happening. And, And I suppose what I'm saying is even if that had been the next five years of my life, even if the next five years of my life had literally just been me flat sharing, getting off with boys in nightclubs, going on some dates, doing well at work, getting drunk with my friends, that would have been a a, a very positive outcome, I think. And I think that's what I always assumed I'd missed. Does it feel right to say that basically you work and party and live in flats for the next five years? Does that sound roughly? I think it does feel right. And I feel good about that. I feel good that that's because that was all the stuff he took away from me. Yeah. That was all the stuff he stole. He stole it all. I feel like we should give you a little more time in it then just so you can kind of get it back. Like, tell me about, um, tell me about where you're living. Tell me about your place and your double and your, with your double bed. And do you stay there the whole time or do you keep bopping? Yeah. So I had historically done sort of six months at a time in flat shares. Um, and but I'd always flat shared. I think I flat shared with friends once. The rest of the time I flat shared with strangers. I would just answer adverts and just go and live with strangers. Mm. So I think I might have at that point started to think about flat sharing with a friend. Okay. Maybe someone who was earning a similar salary to me, so that we could afford something nice together. Who's um, the friend? Which oh, you can you- oh, that's a really good point because I lost all my friends during those five years. I don't have any of the same friends now that I had then. Ah. it's not their fault it's my fault what's his fault it's his fault I mean I've caught up with a lot of them on Facebook since but they're not like friends as in but they're still part of your unlived life 
Very much so. So who would I have liked to have shared a flat with? That's such a good question. Um, I'm thinking Sophie. (laughs) I'm thinking I ended up sharing a flat with Sophie and she was mad, um, high energy, um, sexy as hell. She was (laughs) so sexy um, and stylish and talented. We wrote to each other for years all through my marriage because she knew she couldn't see me, so she used to write me letters all the time and I wrote her letters. Yeah, so me and Sophie would have got a two-bedroom flat with a living room, i.e. nobody sleeping in the living room. Very um, nice. Yeah, and it would have been in, I think, South London at that okay. point. I think our house would have been the party house. It would have definitely been the party house. That's quite interesting. So you guys, do you guys have a lot of parties? Yes, we have a lot of parties, but we're both very house proud. And what, like after the party, we, we tidy up and plump all the cushions back up and we kick people out of the house if they're making a mess. And, uh, and we worry about the neighbours and make sure we turn the music nice and low. And how about with work? Because you've you've gotten this. I'm assuming we're we're a few years into this sort of five year chunk. And have you gotten promoted again? I think I would have got um, headhunted, <gasps> and I think I might have got headhunted by a PR agency because I'd worked, I'd done work experience for a few fashion PR agencies when I was studying fashion at college, um, and I loved the vibe of a PR agency. It is ab ab fab tastic. I mean. Um, all these incredible, incredible, animated, colourful, over-the-top, confident, crazy, neurotic, brilliant women. Yes. So I think I might have got headhunted by a PR agency um, and ended up working, which would have made my life slightly more bohemian than it was at the time. Oh, yeah. I might have gone a bit more bohemian, actually. (gasps) That's interesting. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know. I just think... The sort of maybe so working for warehouse, it's clothes, it's clothes, but it's not fashion in the same way that designer fashion is fashion. Gotcha. So this is just a bit fancier. So yeah, so me and Sophie would be in our lovely little flat in Wandsworth Common, um, and I'd be headhunted to work for this um, fan- fabulous fashion PR agency, probably with an office in a muse somewhere. Definitely, and definite cobblestones, no question. Absolute cobblestones. Um, But then, I think then, then, then the man would have arrived. This is what I'm wondering. I feel like we're close to man time. Yeah. And let's, I want to pause for two seconds, just so we, because if we're, essentially, your first marriage lasted five years, and at the end of it, you were... You found I went straight from one you went straight from one to the other. So I think just can you say briefly what happened there so that we can know what we're running alongside here? I knew that this terrible blighted marriage was going to have to end at some point. And it was just a matter of when, not if. And then I started working at Thomas Pink the Shirtmaker's head office in Battersea as their receptionist. And I was taken around the building to be introduced to everybody on my first day at work. And I was taken into the IT room, the geek room, and was introduced to the contractor who'd only started the week before. And I looked at him and I thought, I have just met you. It is you. You are are my man. You are 
my future. You are my destiny. So me and this guy, we formed an office friendship. And obviously, I didn't have any freedom. It wasn't like we could go out to the pub after work because I had to rush home to my my husband. Um, so we didn't actually have any sort of time to to have an affair or anything. But we were we were friends in the office, and we mess. We had a, a office messaging system so we spend the whole day messaging messaging each other on our computers um and because I was on reception I answered the phone to all his friends when they called to speak to him and they used to chat to me so I got a real vibe about who he was and who his friends were and his friends called all the time and I knew that he was always going off and having fun and doing great things and weekends in the country and going to the pub and going to gigs and oh and I just loved him I just loved him um and just could not wait until fate delivered him to me and that happened on so about a year we'd had this office friendship and he knew I was unhappily married and um it was his 30th birthday and I took him out for pancakes at lunchtime and he'd made me a mixtape he said these just songs that make me think about you and I just remember just getting this massive whoosh of butterflies through my gut. I was like, oh, my God, it's happening. This is it. And he said, um, I know that you're going to leave your husband one day, but I'm starting to develop really strong feelings for you. And I wondered if you could tell me when. I'm prepared to wait, but I'd love to know how long. And I went home from work that night and ended my marriage. Immediately, I walked through the front door. I said, we need to talk. I want to leave. And... I left and started my relationship with the man who's now my second husband. Um, the following day, we went out on our first date the following day. So it was pretty seamless. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you'd had enough friction the five years prior to sort of allow for a seamless transition. That feels yeah. okay. Yeah. So that's that's how that path panned out. Okay. Which cause always makes me wonder about that five-year period of my life that felt so bleak and black and wasted and stolen and dark, is that the only way I could have got to my husband? But born and bred in North London, I'm born and bred in North London. Mm -hmm. Probably if I had been young, free and single and out there with Sophie and my bohemian fashion PR friends and what have you, same pubs, same clubs, same gigs, could paths across some other way. Let's figure it out. Let's think it through. So we're let's go. So we're nineteen. We're back in nineteen ninety five in your other path, and you've just gotten headhunted by the fashion PR agency. You're not over it yet. You're still into it. Uh, you and Sophie are having lots of dinner parties. I'm wondering if any yeah. any men show up to your dinner party or, not, or your parties. I've just made them classier. I don't know if they're dinner parties or not. That's exactly what we would be doing. Yes, and there would definitely be men at those parties because this this social this bubble that I was a part of. At Warehouse, they were all girls because only girls worked at Warehouse, but massively part of a group of of male friends as well. So it was a very mixed group that I was socialising with every weekend. And there would definitely have been boys in the house at at our lovely dinner parties. And also, obviously, you've got your new agency friends, too, and they're all very cool and bohemian. And there might be some boys there, too. Yes. And maybe even the sort of people who might say, oh, um, you know, villa in Ibiza or chateau in France or. That sounds good. Does that happen? I think it might have. I think okay. it might have. I think I might well have found myself being invited to sort of glamorous things that um, that definitely didn't happen to me when I was married to. Where do you get invited? Ibiza, Ibiza, Ibiza. Yes, Ibiza. we'll do that. We'll do the villa. 
Yes. Okay. How long do you go? Oh, five days in September. Five days in September. Yes. When all the families come back to school. Maybe I'd have a boyfriend at the time who I could bring along, but he's not me. Maybe not the guy. Who's that? Who is it? Who is he? As in, like, describe. He has to be wrong because I'm not ending up with him. My type, um, still quite like posh boys. So let's say he is a bit older than me. He's really easygoing. He's got he's really good company. He's got really nice friends, um, and um, he is absolutely uncontrolling and lets me do whatever I want. But now I'm making him sound too much like my perfect guy. No, well, you never know. Maybe you think he's not the perfect guy. Yeah, maybe he is. I see. I'm t- I'm, t- I'm talking to you, but I'm just completely assuming that at some point I'm going to veer off this path or somehow bump into my husband on this path. It's really hard for me to imagine that, that he wasn't part of whatever path I ended up on. But let's see what you can make me believe. Let's see. <laughs> let's see where we go. I don't want to. I do not want to deny you your wonderful marriage. <laughs> I'm interested also in in your real life. When did you? Because you didn't start writing at the moment that you wrote your husband, your Lonely Hearts letter. But when, how did that get started? So coming out of that awful marriage and having my freedom back overnight. So I did lots of things to embrace that. And one of the things I did to embrace that was to um, take up evening classes in creative writing because I could and nobody was going to complain. Um, so I did that. And then later on that year, I was on holiday with my, he was my boyfriend, now my husband, at a villa in Malta with him and all his amazing friends. So I had this ready-made circle of friends when I got together with him. And one of them made me a bet. We were talking about dreams and ambitions. And I said, I'd like to write a novel one day. But I didn't think I was ready yet. I thought I was too young. Um... And she persuaded me I wasn't too young to at least try. So she made me a bet to write the first three chapters of a novel. And I wrote the first three chapters of that novel. And she persuaded me to send them to some agents. And that's how I got my first agent. And that's how I got my first book deal. So had I not met him, I wouldn't have had that conversation with his friend Yasmin that night, a year after we started going out together. And who knows? And I love that as an origin story. But yeah. let's see. Let's see where we go. So you're you had a nice trip to Ibiza. You've got a nice boyfriend who does seem nice. Um, it might not be the one. That's okay because you're only like 26, 27 yeah. or something. He doesn't have to be the one. You and Sophie are still living together. Lots of dinner parties. At what point do you start getting tired of PR? Um, are you there yet? I think I already am. I think I'm thinking I'm going to be 27 this year. Um, and you know, what's interesting about fashion PR or about PR PR generally is you have to write a lot of press releases. Um, and I do remember writing press releases at warehouse and you can wax pretty damn lyrical in a fashion press release. So we could assume that given that I have had a natural talent for writing since I was a child, that maybe at the fashion PR agency they've established Lisa's the girl to do the the press releases because she's got a lovely way with words. It's possible that might have been something that triggered something in me. 
or maybe I should revisit my ambitions to be a journalist, which is what I'd wanted to be when I was a young teenager. I wanted to be a music journalist specifically. Of course, when you're working in fashion PR, you're very, very, very interrelated with magazines and journalists. The two industries completely. So it's possible I might have been scouting around thinking, it'd be wonderful if Marie Claire... <laughs> Marie Claire wanted to, you know, poach me and take me on board. I do think that given that I've never been terribly good at anything in my own whole entire life apart from writing, and if I found myself in a job where my writing skills were being utilised, that might have given me the sort of springboard into thinking... Maybe now's the time to actually get on board with a career. So let's think about what is happening. So do you think, is it Marie Claire that gives you the journalism job or is it somewhere yeah. else? Let's yeah. say Marie Claire is a good magazine. And it's, well done. Congratulations. Good job. I'm off to Marie Claire. And what's my job title? What is your job title? Assistant fashion writer, assistant I don't know. Would it be? Would I be writing about fashion or lifestyle or food or food? I'd be very. I reckon I'd be really, really into cooking by my late twenties. That would probably be one of my main hobbies. In fact, would be cooking and buying cookbooks and having dinner parties and experimenting with food. And yeah. So shall we say that I am the assistant food writer? Love this. I even have taken a pay cut, but worth it because, yeah. Yeah, you can afford it. Is it okay? I, really, I never wanted to be in working in fashion PR. Just found myself there. So I finally found myself doing what I actually want to do. So prepared to take a small pay, pay cut, but I can still afford the rent on the flat in um, South London with Sophie. You're doing so well. I'm really pleased for you. I'm glad you found your calling. This is really good. Okay, so you're at Marie Claire. You're still living with Sophie. And the guy, are we still dating the guy? Yeah, because he sounded really nice, didn't he? He was nice, yeah. And I'm I'm just, now I'm like having to get my head into sort of, is he going to dump me or am I going to dump him? Or is he the guy? Yeah, because I'm still only 27, aren't I? Yeah, you're young. 27, 28. So I'm not quite in that, oh, my God, it's my 30th birthday freak out zone yet. We'll just go with it. He's really nice. He's not putting any pressure on me. I'm not putting any pressure on him. And there's nobody out. There's nobody in the wings. That's what's going to happen. <gasps> Someone's going to appear in the wings. Someone's I'm coming. Just... Okay, let's get to, let's make sure we get to the wings. Someone's coming. I don't know who it is. I, I love know. it. I'm so excited. Oh, I can't handle the suspense. Okay. So, all right. Someone's waiting. We don't know who they are yet. You're at Marie. Let's talk about Marie Claire a little bit more. You're doing your food writing. Does that mean you're, are you going to a lot of restaurants? I think it's more like recipe based stuff. Yes. So planning photo shoots for cookery articles. How long do you think that role lasts at Marie Claire? Oh, probably not that long. I'm going to say that... I do that job for about 18 months um, and then I move on. I might even actually, might I leave and like, I don't know, take a year out to do something. Oh, like what kind of something? I don't know. Unless it's writing. Well, I wouldn't have any savings in the bank to support myself. Yeah, that's the hard bit. 
Yeah. Uh, so I would be absolutely dependent on a salary. The only way it would work is if this lovely boyfriend um, said, I'll support you. Why don't you move in with me and I'll support you to do whatever this thing is that you want to do. And that would take our relationship onto the next level and give me the opportunity to do something, which is actually exactly what happened with my real life husband. <laughs> he gave me, he, he, I thought I can't write the rest of the book. So I'd written the three chapters and then an agent wanted to see the whole book. And I said to my boyfriend, husband, I can't do that because I can't afford to not work. And he said, well, if you move into my flat, then rent free you won't have to pay any rent and then you could just maybe work part-time so that is actually what happened and then I wrote my first book while I was living in his flat um so why do I feel like I've naturally gravitated towards this sort of knight in shining armor coming in <laughs> and making everything happen it's not a bad thing I mean we are I feel like you know as my therapist would say, no one can do it by themselves. That's a very good way of looking at it. Nobody can do it by themselves. No one really can do let's it by themselves. Forget, let's, no, no, this boy, this lovely boy, no, he's not going to. He's not, maybe, maybe that's why we end up splitting up, because I realise he's, he's just not going to be financially stable enough for, for me. I think, I think that's totally valid. Maybe I just love it there so much, but I don't move. And I love it. And I just think, and when people ask me about my job, I'll say I've got the best job in the world. Oh, I'm the assistant food editor at Marie Claire. And it's just amazing. And I get to travel and I get to meet famous chefs and I get to go on photo shoots and, and write. I get the occasional little pay rise. Um, but so if that's happening, so I'm finally writing for a living and not just writing, but having a really fun job to go with it team a really lovely team um then I'm going to my focus is now going to go back on to right I'm going to be 30 in a couple of years I don't want to be left behind and I love Sophie so much but <laughs> I think it's time I'd like to have my own place maybe um, yeah, I don't want to be sharing a flat with Sophie when I'm 30 I'm going to be thinking Okay. So, so I now I've got this job. My focus is definitely going to go back to finding finding my soulmate. So do you you're going to move out and live on your own in order to find your soulmate? Let's find your flat first before we find your life partner. I think I'd be prepared to um trade down on location at this point. So I would just cast the net wide. Um would I even be thinking about getting a mortgage? <gasps> I think I would. And Marie Claire is based down in Waterloo. So let's say I'm sort of southeast, because then it's still easy for me to get into work, New Cross or something, which is, of course, very fashionable now, but wasn't then. Yep. So I've got myself a little one-bedroom flat there, maybe with a balcony or something. Um, That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So flat and new cross, Marie Claire is going great. Yes, but people are starting to couple up and leave London as well. So that's all sort of breaking apart a little bit, and it's not quite what it was. Um, and I've got my boyfriend and his social group. Are we are we stuck with the boyfriend? I can't think of a good reason to get rid of him yet, but I've got to get rid of him because I, uh, yeah, 
because somebody's waiting in the wings. Maybe it's maybe now we're going back to the novels of the 1990s. Maybe he's the guy in the flat across the hall from my new flat in New Cross. That's it. It's him. He's got a cat and the cat keeps coming into my apartment. That's it. It's him. He's gorgeous. He's perfect. He's wonderful. And I know I've seen him and I'm not seeing my husband's face in my head. I'm completely going with this now. I've decoupled from reality, I promise you. Tell me about him. He's really tall. He's really tall and he's got a sort of like chestnutty thick hair that's sort of like slightly shaggy and he's wearing a band t-shirt. I don't know what band it is. Um, And he's just got a really nice crinkly face and he smiles a lot and he's called like Liam or he's kind of Brit poppy and Mm. He's barefoot. He opens the door to let his cat in and he's not got any socks on. He's got bare feet. He's got really nice feet. That's amazing. I did the, who has nice feet? What man has nice feet? So I found a man with nice feet. Good job. And he is, I think he works in the music industry, but not in a dickhead job. There's so many dickhead jobs in the music industry. Maybe he works in music publishing or something um music rights something like that so he goes to work every day in soho maybe like a denman street in a sort of yeah like a little i don't know a little up there first floor flat overlooking the shops and uh, he's the boss because remember i'm looking for financial security so he's a bit older than me he knows what he wants yeah it's his company he's had a couple of long-term relationships and he's just uh, clearly ready to settle down, but he's not going to like sweep me off my feet and do big romantic nonsense with me. We're just going to get to know each other really slowly. And I'm slowly going to come to terms with the fact that I'm going to have to dump the boyfriend. Yeah. Who's been there. How long have I been going out with him for? Like a good three, four years. It's been a while. It's been a long time. I feel like you gave it a really good go with him. So, yeah, we're going to get to know each other slowly, me and Liam. And, um, uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll bump into each other in town one night and uh, he'll say, are you, are you heading back to New Cross? And I'll say, yeah, I was just on my way home. He said, well, you've got time for a drink before we head home. And then we'd like have a couple of drinks and another couple of drinks then end up tumbling into bed. So yeah, and then and then he becomes really successful because <laughs> I'm thinking he's got this little flat in New Cross, but I think he's just on the cusp of it just really taking off. Yes, yeah, okay. yeah. So that's it. I'm 27. He's no, but I must be 28. We've definitely hit 30 with you at this point, don't you think? So I'm 30, and he's say 33 yeah. now. Um, and I think we would take things quite quickly. I think we would sell our little flats in New Cross and um, buy a place together. Where? I think still in southeast London. I don't know. I don't know. Let's just say somewhere in the southeast London vicinity. I still don't think we could afford to live in like zone zone two. It would have to be zone three. So now I'm I'm pretty much I'm sorted. I'm settled. I've got this lovely guy. We bought a really nice, say, two-bedroom flat somewhere together. Uh, we got his lovely cat, and we both got really satisfying, interesting jobs in interesting industries. 
So now what? Well, there's a couple things to circle around to. Either there's work or possibly there's children. Yes. So I, in this real life that I've lived, didn't had no maternal instincts of any description throughout my entire childhood, teenage years, 20s and early 30s. Um, and the only reason why I decided to go for it and, and, and attempt to get pregnant, we started trying on my 30, when I was 33, yes, we started trying when I was 33. And the only reason why I made that decision is because all our friends were starting to have babies and I didn't want to be left behind. I could just tell that our whole social life was about to change. Um, and I just thought, well, I don't want to not have children. So thus, just hold your nose, jump in, get on with it. That's really interesting, just because obviously, I think that's probably the case for more people than would care to admit it. Yeah, in my actual real storyline, I started, we started trying for a baby when I was 33. And I gave birth to my first baby just after I turned 35. So in this world where I'm a similar age now, let's say I'm 31 because we've now bought a flat. So that would have taken at least a year. And he's now 34. So I'm getting to the point where in my real life, I was starting to think about having babies. But I guess that would depend on what my contemporaries were doing in this other life that I didn't live. Um, And if they were all still partying and pubbing and having good times, then I maybe would put it off a bit longer. Because I don't think being with this guy would have given me any more maternal instincts than I had in my real life. That's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering is if there's any other something more internal that might have spurred you in one direction or another. I think it would have gone two ways. It would have either gone, all our friends are having babies, we should have one, or I actually don't think I want to have a baby. Well, let's decide. I mean, you're in quite a different social circle now, right? I mean, you're surrounded by super hip music people and food journalists and. Yes, so the group of people that I've grown up with, with my husband in real life, we're all very similar and we all go on holiday together and all that sort of business. It's not a disparate group of people. It's a very close-knit group of people, whereas I'm imagining in this other world, it's slightly more disparate. Thus would mean that I wouldn't be terribly fussed if they started giving birth, I suppose, because it wouldn't have a massive impact on my own life. It would be me and Liam would be the most important thing. Um, and how we spent our time together. So I guess it would depend whether Liam wanted a baby. Does he? I think he does. Okay. But I think he might like to wait longer. So I'm going to say that he he pushes the issue once he's sort of passed over the hump of 35 and starts thinking, I don't want to be an old dad. So I'm going to say that I do have a baby in this other life. I'm going to say that I do. And I'm going to say that I have it about the same age I had it in my real life. I'm going to say mid-30s. But how many do I have? Because after I had my first baby in real life, I didn't want another one. And the only reason why I had another one is because when my first baby was two... Me and my sisters lost our mother. She was quite young. She was only 61. And um, we came together like, I mean, we'd always been close, but the way we 
held on to each other during that whole experience just made me realize that siblings aren't for the parents they're for the they're for, each other. They're for this they're for what happens when the parents are gone to have that sort of you know the, the people who were there for everything um so yeah I only had a second child because of that because I suddenly thought I don't want Amelie who's my elder girl I don't want her to leave the hospice on her own and not have someone to hold outside the hospice when she's just said goodbye to her mother. What an extraordinary reason. Yeah, and uh, glad I did it. They actually really quite like each other, which is nice given that I made them for each other. So I think, let's say I stop at one with Liam because I'm also going to say that maybe our jobs are slightly more. So whereas in my real life, our jobs kept us very much home-based, Uh, it was very easy for us to manage raising a family because we were always around. In this life, me and Liam are off. I'm, I'm off traveling, doing photo shoots and what have you in foreign countries. So it's much easier, I think, for us to focus on one child. So we have one child. So there, there we are. I think this is sounding lovely. It's a really nice life. Yeah, yeah it is a really nice. But we, I haven't written a book yet. Yeah. How does that feel? <laughs> Do you, are you starting to get an itch? I think, yes, I think I am. I am starting to get an itch and I'm thinking because I always had this feeling when I was younger about this desire to write a book that particularly as a woman that you weren't really in a position to fill a book with words about life until you'd lived life. Mm. And so I'd always thought to myself that I would write a book after I'd had children. So let us say that I am now 45, okay. 46, maybe when he or she has started secondary school, in fact. So let's say I'm 46 and I'm still working at Marie Claire. Um, maybe I'm working part time. Maybe I never went back full time. That makes sense which has given me a little bit more time at home. And, of course, now the internet has developed into something amazing. Maybe I've started writing online. Um, I might have a blog. I think it would be more of a lifestyle blog. I think it would be more about, I don't know, having a kid. Oh. Like a mummy blog. That's interesting. So I'm the same age as I am in real life, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, so I was 46, eight years ago. Okay. So this is 20... 2014. 2014. Acting like the internet is all new. It's not. It's been around for a while. I think, I think like last decade was, it was like a good time for bloggers. I think that was a, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So part-time Marie Claire, you've got your mummy blog. And my child is at secondary school and... Maybe I'm trying to think what what publishing was like at that time. What might have inspired me? So when I when I wrote my first novel, that had been directly inspired by reading High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, um, by hearing a voice that I just completely resonated with me that just felt familiar, that just felt uh, attainable in terms of writing. So I'm trying to imagine if there would have been what book was out around then that might have had the same effect on me of of making me think, wow. I think, right, I think, and I don't think it was 2014, I think it was before that, but maybe it had been, it's, it's a book that did inspire me within the context of an ongoing writing career. I think if I'd read this book uh, without being a novelist, I would have thought I want to be a novelist. And that was... Um, 
After You're Gone by Maggie O'Farrell. That book is the most unbelievable. It's just earth shattering. I totally agree. Just one of those books where you read it and you, I don't know, you just sort of own it. You're just like, yeah, I get everything about this. And I, I absolutely, I think I would have read that. And I think that would have got me interested in the book market and um, what was out there and what wasn't out there. And I think at around the age of 46, I would have finally found my moment I guess unlike in my own true life story, I'd have had to have self-motivated. I, there wouldn't have been a conversation with Yasmin um, to bully me into it. I'd have had to have done it myself, but I'd be 46 by then, so I wouldn't have felt so audacious to think I could write a novel. I think at the age of 26, as I was in my real life, it felt ridiculously audacious for me to think that I could write a novel. Whereas at 46, I'd be thinking, yeah, I've lived my life. I've, I've raised a child. I've lost a parent. I've done this. I've done that. I've traveled. Also, you've been writing in your career for 15 years. Exactly. So I don't think I'd have needed the, the kick up the backside from a third party. I would have done it for myself. And um, I'm picturing myself at a another desk. So I can see what I look like at the desk in my husband's flat where I started writing Rouse Party. And now I'm having to pitch myself another desk in our lovely flat in southeast London. And the cat is cat still alive? Would the cat still be alive? Oh, the cat's probably dead by oh. now. Maybe we've got a different cat. Anyway. I think the cat, in fact, the cat is definitely dead. You guys met a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. What would I write? What would be my opening lines of my first novel at the age of 46? Oh, I don't know. I still think I would have written a good book, though. Of course you would have. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because what we were talking about at the beginning, which is obviously those five years, that first marriage clearly informed the way you think and your character's psychology so deeply. So it does feel like it might be quite different. Yes. It's dark, but it's, um, yeah, very different themes, mm -hmm. very different so, yes, so I have written about coercive control probably in about five, six, seven of my novels, whether it's a sort of high high note theme or a, or a low note theme. It's, in, it's been in there a lot. And it's weird to think that without those five years, I probably wouldn't have addressed that issue in any of my novels. Instinctive, the writing would be, it'd be much more sort of using external knowledge and facts to inform inform the characters whereas when I write about coercive control it comes from my gut <laughs> from this little bit of black tar that still sits at the bottom of my gut left over from those five years so supposing I'm sitting there in my lovely southeast London flat with my laptop about to start writing my first novel and I would finish it I would finish it because I'm a finisher um would it have been published well you got that's something we cannot know because that's not to do with me or my choices is it that's to do with the universe. well you'd have to do the same thing in a way that you did before is you'd have to send it to an agent yeah which presumably I mean yeah. the thing I will say is I'd say after being a journalist and being married to somebody in the music industry like you definitely know somebody in publishing at this point yeah yes which makes me feel a bit sad because one of the things I love about my publishing story is that I got there without knowing anybody in the publishing industry interesting 
I've always liked that and it's always been nice to be able to share that with with aspiring writers. I, I feel sad to imagine having to use a contact. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you don't use a contact. Maybe I don't. Maybe I write about someone who's a food journalist. Whatever I wrote, I know it would have been dark. The stuff I've written since I started writing dark fiction has felt very, very much more than my gut um, and what I was always meant to write. So I think I would have gone, if I'd had to wait all those years before I could sit down to write a novel, I'd have gone straight in with the dark and bypassed the, 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 the shiny stuff completely. That makes sense. I just know it would have been a good book. I'm feeling very confident that it would have been a good book. I feel confident it would have been a good book. If I hadn't got a publishing deal, would I have enjoyed the experience so much that I would have thought, okay, well, that one didn't work, so I'm going to write another one? Or would I have just thought, well, I tried, it didn't work, I'm just going to go back to my day job and... So should we say I do get a book deal? I think you get a book deal. Also, I mean, it's interesting, this thing about connections. You know, I always, because I always wondered about that and felt bad about that. But I think the thing is about connections is the, the connections that you would have developed are not because you were born into them. The connections you would have developed yeah. are because you've worked your face off for 20 years in an industry. And I always feel like those kinds of connections get passed over, but they're, they're a result of your work. They're not a result of yeah. you being handed, you know, a silver platter. They're a result of your graft. It's just, it wasn't writing grafting. It was, it was, working your yes. magazine grafting. I feel like you're allowed. Okay. All right. So I have a friend in this world. Maybe she's a friend of my husband's and she works for Bloomsbury. <laughs> and she gets my book in front of an editor there who takes a punt. Everyone around me is thrilled and, yeah, it, it's rejuvenated our entire sort of social circle was just oh. everyone's so excited for me and it's made a lot of my female friends feel like oh maybe I could pursue a dream that I put off to have children maybe I maybe I should do this maybe I should do that but when we started this conversation did it strike you as inevitable that we'd end up with me writing a novel no what does it mean that I've I've tweaked this timeline so that I end up writing a novel. Fundamentally, I think that it's because you're a writer at your core and it's really difficult to imagine your life without without yeah. writing in it. But what I really like is getting into the, you know, really kind of diving into the something else and giving you some space to be in your 20s and all of that sort of stuff. I really, really love being in my 20s so for that hour. It was wonderful. <laughs> all the stuff that I thought I had to live through in order to be ready to write a novel which in my real life story, I started before I'd lived through any of that. I mean, that's quite nice, isn't it? Because ultimately you didn't have to go through all of that in order to, in order to write. No. What I think is really interesting is that you stayed writing dark. Yes. That's really fascinating because one would be tempted to think that the dark writing came out of the dark times. No, no, it didn't. It would have been there anyway. That would have definitely have been what I wanted to write about in my 40s, even if I hadn't had that awful five years. I've written my novel. I've got a book deal. I'm happily married. I've got a great kid. Do you, do you get a new cat? That's the final question. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely get a new cat. 
Um, and now that I'm a novelist and not a jet setting food writer, we can get a dog. Amazing. Well. See, there you go. Look yeah. at all those pets. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you for giving me my 20s back. Thank it's you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Sometimes I think the point of talking through an unlived life is exactly what Lisa did in this episode, to experience something in miniature that you feel you missed. A sense of lost time is so common, especially when you feel others experience something fundamental that for whatever reason you did not. There's nothing we can do about lost time really, but when we give ourselves the experience of moving through it, even in the imagination, I think it has the potential to provide a bit of closure. It was really fun to get to experience Lisa's 20s with her. The nights out, the shifting friendship groups, the career progression in flat chairs, the dinner parties, and almost right boyfriends. And it was equally fun to watch her step fully into the exercise, letting go of her real life to do what she does best. Write an absolutely incredible story. <laughs>